Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Avatar Returns. I'm your host, Paul Smith of the Gobbledy Geek Podcast, and joining me, as always, are... I'm Eric Sipple. And I'm Arlo Wiley. And each week, we discuss two to four episodes of the Nickelodeon animated series Avatar The Last Airbender and its sequel series The Legend of Korra. Eric and I have seen both series before, but this is Arlo's first trip to the world of Avatar, so there will be spoilers, but only up through the episodes that we're discussing tonight. Uh, and tonight... All hell breaks loose as we reach the explosive book one finale of The Legend of Korra. Uh, only two chapters this time, but a lot to discuss with uh, 111 Skeletons in the Closet and 112 Endgame. But uh, before we get into those, let's, uh, let's take a few minutes uh, and sort of talk about the season that has led us up to this point, shall we? Not that good. Not- <laughs> <laughs> You've just been kind of kind of mediocre. Yeah, it's just been treading water this whole time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, like, I kept wondering, like, is something going to happen? Is it going to have anything to any like themes or points or anything to say? And it's <laughs> not really not delivering. No, it's just a uh, just a bunch of uh, just a bunch of bending. I mean, it's just it's a cartoon. What do you expect? It's not going to exactly. It's not going to get that deep or anything. Just, just drawings. <laughs> um, a five year old could have done this. Yeah, of course. So. Um, Seriously, though, Arlo. Uh, uh, no, I. Uh, so going into it, I didn't. I knew I didn't know a lot about Avatar when we first started watching that, and I knew less about Korra when we started getting into Korra. So I didn't really know what to expect, and I was really pleased to discover that it is. It is very much its own thing, uh, like uh, aesthetically, uh, tonally, and all of that. While at the same time, it feels like exactly what you would want out of a sequel to Avatar. It uh, matures the world. It matures the uh, storytelling themes. Uh, it's it's it really matures a couple of the characters. It does well, yeah. It, it, it like by several decades. Um, and it was it's I I think the season as a whole is very satisfying. I kept trying to think, especially while watching these two final episodes, and we can get more into this later, but initially when we started, I think one of you had told me that this was an originally conceived as like a one-and-done mm-hmm. type thing. This was going to be – they're going to do one season, and that was going to be it. Um, and so I kept trying to think, if this was all we got, like if this was w- the only – uh, Legend of Korra we ever got was would this be a satisfying tale all told and I guess I'll, I'll save my answer for a little while later but I, I do think it really it's a cohesive uh, coherent uh, whole and it really especially given how, how fewer episodes there are than in a season of Avatar they really use that to their advantage and they tell a really tight uh, story so yeah I, I, was, I was really impressed Excellent, Eric. I can uh, I can anticipate what your response to that is going to be. But uh, what the hell? Why don't Why don't we hear it anyways? How do you feel? Um, you don't have to tell us if you've been totally satisfied by these final two episodes yet. But uh, how do you feel about the season up to this point? Um, so I, I knew coming into core, obviously, I had been really enthused about getting to this. So it's no surprise that I've been enjoying myself. What did surprise me, and, and it's something that hit me in the middle of these two episodes actually not at the end so i don't feel like it's a big spoiler to say it which is that shockingly i came out of this as this is 
my favorite season of the Avatar verse so far that we've seen. Wow. Like, I, I want to see where we get to the end because there's one more season of Korra specifically where I know I had a really positive reaction, and I'm curious how how I feel about it when I get back to it. But I I'm just I was so I'm so over the moon about this this season of television. And um, one thing I realized is that I I think this really is what it kind of comes down to for Korra is that for some for some reason beyond just the like the slightly more mature and deep thematic work um is going on i also just i think i feel the show a little more viscerally i mean there's a lot of times where big moments happen where i get i got legitimately emotional in a way that i usually didn't with avatar no matter how much i loved it i love avatar like i really loved avatar but the number of times the times i got legitimately emotional in avatar were usually not big plot moments they were usually little things like iroh's story mm-hmm. in um the tales of bossing say like things like that were what emotionally involved me in in avatar cora just nails the big moments in ways that i get like so swept up in in those things it just it just nails those things there's a, a sequence a couple sequences in these episodes that i was just like swept up in the motion of it so yeah i mean that's not a knock on anything in avatar but um this season of of television at the very least is like pure air catnip and um, I'm <laughs> just really I'm really excited to to have gotten to rewatch it because I think a lot more of this season than I did the first time I saw it well I'm gonna I'm gonna mirror what you said then Eric because uh, I as we've discussed before I've watched Cora a couple of times before this um, I, I think twice we'll say this is my third time through and I've sort of struggled with it the previous times um, Again, as with uh, our our discussions of Avatar The Last Airbender, having a situation like this podcast where I sit down with the two of you and we, we actually discuss these things has changed the way I view the show, and I think it has only improved it. I This is the most that I have enjoyed this season of Korra, any of the times that I've watched it. Um, so, And, and I, I've liked it before, but uh, if, if I had, like I said, my memories of of all but possibly the fourth season, book four, I think is really the only one that I, I have what I feel like is a clear memory of. Um, I didn't, I couldn't really remember much about uh, book one. So, uh, but I think it'll stick with me now, having had these conversations with you guys and uh, and the the deeper appreciation I have for everything that's going on here. So, that's awesome. Uh, the one other thing I will say is that – so we've been talking about how uh, – the, the ways in which Korra is different from Avatar. And I think I'll just say that I can understand like why some people definitely prefer one to the other. Like Avatar was a big sweeping epic fantasy story whereas Korra is you know it's it's got the uh urban landscape and it's a much tighter more focused story and i think they're both really appealing in different ways with the different stories they're telling um i think just coming off of avatar for the first time i still i still prefer avatar Mm-hmm. Especially with only one, the you know the first season of Korra, down just because I was really taken with, um, with the, the sweeping epic fantasy of it all, um, and this is definitely an adjustment. But I still think I, I think it's really good, and I think uh, the ways in which it's different from Avatar are really strong too. Cool. Um, so I was going to pose us three sort of 
questions that we can we can tackle at the end, basically. So I, I feel like what we should look at by the time we're done, by the end of this season, by the end of tonight's episode, I kind of feel like maybe we should be able to address um, three things. Like how well does the show, did the show, did this season handle Cora's journey, which I guess by that, I guess I mean her, like her spiritual block that she's got and sort of her identity crisis. That's the, that was one of the, the themes that was set up early in the season. Obviously there's this whole bender versus non-bender thing. That's been a major element of this season. And so we've come to the end of the season. I think we should discuss where, how we think that's played out. And we should talk, I guess, more about the, the love trapezoids or whatever, (laughs) whatever love trapezoids. I like it. Whatever the hell that we have uh, that's That's, been going on. That's the, my, my new band name, the love trapezoids, Arlo and the love trapezoids. (laughs) There you go. So uh, maybe while we're discussing these, uh, these two chapters, we can think about those in terms of the season as a whole. Yeah, definitely. Um, All right. So uh, without further ado, I guess let's dive right in. So uh, chapter 111, Skeletons in the Closet. Arlo, you're the noob. Um, yeah, so I think the most immediately striking thing about this episode is that there's like some real old fashioned war movie type stuff at the beginning. Yeah. Um, there's some really cool, like they're like biplanes and stuff like Hiroshi Sato has invented. Um, or as Bolin says, where does Hiroshi find the time to keep inventing new evil machines? Yeah. Uh, so it's got a really cool, like world war two style battle uh, at the beginning, a detail that I really loved was uh, so general Iroh, Mm-hmm. Uh, his his ship is in the harbor now, and there's there are firebender cannons. Mm-hmm. I loved that. Just having uh, firebenders blast through a cannon, like I, it's it seems so simple and so obvious, but it's it's such a cool. Yeah, thing. I I don't know if you uh, I don't know if you saw how they were uh, doing that, but I think at least at one point I, it looked like there were two or maybe even three firebenders. Uh, that were like standing at the base of one of the cannons and they would, they would all blast into the cannon at once. And so it's like three firebenders channeling their blasts into one pinpoint thing. I just thought that was fascinating. That is yeah. really cool. That was awesome. I love, I love the little details like that of the, of the cannon. And they all, they also had a, uh, um, I don't, I don't think we saw any waterbenders, although they did, he did, uh, like Iroh did call out for waterbenders, but we saw earthbenders. Yeah, like doing, the, do, sort of doing the pro-bending thing of exactly. like you know, stomping on the ground and throwing discs of earth. Yeah. Um, and then you get, uh, we may not have gotten to see Iroh's waterbenders. We do get to see Korra. Korra represents waterbending very well. Yeah. She has this awesome water spout and is like making like mini icebergs rise up from the from the ocean. Yeah. Um, yeah. Re- that was... re- redirecting torpedoes up at plans. Yes. yes. That was such a cool fight. Such a great fight. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the episode is, as a whole. Um, so this is the episode where we get a massive info dump. <laughs> yes, we do. And that kind of thing can be sort of obnoxious because it, it halts the story 
uh, in its tracks just to deliver all this information that's suddenly going to make things make more sense. But I, for the most part, found this one to be really satisfying. Um, I will say the revelation that Amon is Tarlock's brother, you know, and therefore Yakon's son. Mm-hmm. I'm I've grown sort of wary of twists like, wait, the villain is actually somebody's brother. Like I've that's gotten a little tired for me, but on the whole, I mean, I, th- I thought the flashbacks were strong enough that that like the 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 impact of it was still felt by me, especially. Um, have it. So I guess the explanation for last week, we were asking, you know, does this really explain why Yacon could, you know, bloodbend uh, when, you know, the, the full moon wasn't out, why he was so good at it? I guess the explanation just boils down to his family's really good at bloodbending. Yeah, I guess. Like, we, we, I think we just have to accept that fact. Yeah. That, you know, different uh, families, different tribes are born with different abilities, and uh, Yacon's just happen to be bloodbending. Um, so we get to see flashbacks of Amon, whose real name is Noatak. And one thing I thought was really interesting is that, so when I'm writing my notes, uh, in, in Outlook, um, there, there's automatic spell check and like, there's so many weird names mm-hmm. in these shows. That, like 95% of my notes are like, they have the red squiggles. Yeah. I'm looking at my notes right now. It's half uh, red, red underlines. Noatak is not one of them. Oh, mine no- is. Not on mine. Like it had no problem with Noah talk. It accepted Noah talk as a real spelling of something weird. So that was what most struck me about this episode. <laughs> no, uh, uh, but the, the flashbacks are so disturbing of Yukon teaching them bloodbending. The, the visual that is going to stick with me for quite a while is, uh, so Yukon took uh, Tarlock and Noah talk. That's fun to say. Uh, <laughs> Tarlock and Noah talk out on uh, hunting trips to bloodbend animals, which I guess is sort of the avatar equivalent of like a serial killer killing mm-hmm. animals in his backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a moment where uh, it's Tarlock who bloodbends a pack of whining, terrified wolves. Yeah, I, I, I'm. I am not happy with that. In fact, uh, Pam has seen this series before, but uh, she's not going through this rewatch with me this time. But she just happened to be in the room when that scene was played, when I was watching this episode and that scene happened. And she was like, how can you watch this? You of all people, how can you watch this? And I was like, well, it's brief. I'm just, I'm gritting my teeth and I'm getting through it. It doesn't last very long. But it's it's really disturbing. It's, though. it's not pleasant, yeah. Especially for a kids show. I mean, I think I think maybe more than anything we've seen on uh, Avatar or Korra, even with the bloodbending. Like, I, I think this that scene of of uh, Tarlock and the Noah talk bloodbending the wolves, that might be the most disturbing scene in either of these series so far. That yeah, was... it, it, I think I think that the the. You know, we've seen a lot in a lot of shows and a lot of movies, like people getting themselves all twisted up from attacks. You know what I mean? Like the kinds of thing that bloodbending does. Not to say that it isn't disturbing and they don't do a good job of it in the show, but we've kind of seen that. But there's something so unnatural in the cruelty of the way he manipulates the wolves that I think it it makes it almost nightmarish. You know, like that that visual isn't just like it's not just horrifying in what it is. It's it's so beyond natural 
for us that it's that I think it's just hard to forget the image of that and because it stuck with me too. I think so, and especially at the very end of that scene where he like I couldn't tell if he was making the wolves like like bow down and like to, to, to be subservient to mm-hmm. him or if yeah. they just did that naturally, like after what they just went through. No, he, I, I, I read that, he as, that as he was making them bow like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's way worse. Just like subjugating them like that. Yeah. That, that whole scene really messed with me. Um, but basically what we learned from these flashbacks, we learned that Yacon trained his sons to, uh, I think, uh, Noah talk, you know, says, you know, we're your sons, not your tools of revenge at one point, but that's what Yacon trained them to be, to avenge, uh, the, the you know, to avenge him, mm-hmm. how angry and Aang removed his bending and all of that. They wanted, uh, he wanted his kids to go and take out the avatar. Um, and I think we learn that Amon's aversion to bending, uh, comes from his father's training because training brought out a different side of Yakone. And for Amon, all of his problems started when uh, his father discovered they were benders and started making that the focus of their life. And so, you know, I think even Tarlock says at one point that, um, you know, the revolution may be built on a lie, but, you know, Amon truly thinks that bending is the source of all evil in the world. Uh, and that's sad, just because because of the way he was treated as a kid, he sees that and just applies that to to the world at large, and thinks that 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 this thing needs to be taken away uh, to make everything better. And what I thought I think that is, was I thought that was a really believable uh, motivation. And what I like about it is what I really like about the the revelation on this because is because I agree with you, like the the you're a family, you're the members of this family twist is is a little tired. Um, but what I like about it is twofold. One is that. The revelation is 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 useful on a plot level because it like helped set us up for bloodbending before we got there. Like so, on a plot level, it was useful for that. But beyond that, it's really only important personally to Tarlock. Like it's not a it's not a revelation like it's it's Bolin's brother or something. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not right. like it's it's personal to that character. And what I like about the way it plays out is that. Both Tarlock and um, Amon's motivations are, in some ways, inadvertent reflections of what their father forced them to want to do. And they both thought they were rebelling against their father, but both went out and did perpetrated it, which is a very, like, with the way abuse perpetrates itself through generations. Mm-hmm. That even though neither of them wanted anything to do with their father at the end of it, Amon went on his father's revenge quest against the Avatar and in and through going against Bending, effectively enacted one end of his father's revenge. And Tarlock tried to subjugate the city to his will too, even though that wasn't like the thing he went out to do to please his father. They both couldn't help but try to do what their father had drilled into them because he hadn't given them any other choice and had basically demolished them psychologically as a result. So I really like that they're both reflections of Yacon's um, abusive obsessiveness with regaining, with getting revenge, basically. Yeah. Um, the, the sort of transformation of Tarlock from the 
what for most of this season he was just the sort of manipulative slightly creepy politician in the background and then for an episode or two recently he became an outright maybe maybe just an episode i don't know or one or two last week he was like a villain he was the villain that revealed um and now he becomes genuinely sympathetic like the 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 story that he tells like Cora says, you know, that's one of the saddest stories I've ever heard. When you hear Cora say that, or when I heard Cora say that, I reflected for a second. I was like, hmm, is it? Like, I just, I instinctively was like, oh, let's not be hyperbolic. And then halfway through that sentence, I was like, no, nah, no, she's right. That was, that was, <laughs> that was super messed up. That was a messed up story. Um, so yeah, in this episode, he, he becomes sympathetic, which kind of blows my mind. He does. But to I, the point. Go ahead. Uh, excuse me, he becomes sympathetic to the point that obviously this doesn't transpire based on how the, the next episode ends. But I was like, if they keep, you know, keep him around for another season, I I could see him being like a a supporting character. Like all of a sudden I I am interested in him and I I feel sorry for him. And I could, I could see him possibly like going on a redemption arc, but you know, that's not what we, I mean, we sort of get it. Maybe a redemption arc. There's, there's, there's redemption in fire, I guess. Um, but, uh, I'm thinking back to, so with all of the revelations that we get about that character in this episode, um, I, I'm thinking back to, uh, how we've seen him bloodbend before. And it was only in, we've only seen it in like the last, the previous two episodes, right? The previous two chapters. That's all we ever saw him do it. I he, think so. Yeah. He did it once to stop. Um, well, actually it might've just been one episode in his fight with, uh, with Cora. Yeah. Uh, oh no. And then the next episode when everyone came to confront him, he, That's he right. used bloodbending to stop everybody, but in both instances. So, so what I was thinking back to is how did he use it? Like how, because here we see him as a child and he's talking about how he hated every second of doing it. And he certainly seemed traumatized by that experience. Um, so I was like, how have we seen him use it as an adult? And, and both times, like he did it only as a, as a desperate last act. And, um, I can't remember what his reaction was after he blood bent Cora, but after when he had to blood bend like Tenzin and everybody, when they were coming to arrest him, he seemed genuinely horrified. Now you could have read that. And I think maybe I did initially read that as he's freaked out because he's been exposed. He's just had to reveal himself to all these people, but there's also the possibility that he's genuinely disgusted that he just had to do that to a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Yeah. It 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 really recontextualizes things and it makes a lot of sense about how like he is so panicked after he has to bloodbend Korra. Mm Mm-hmm. And every every action he takes after that is pure desperation, basically. And this kind of makes sense of that, of why he, you kind of read it as like, oh, he's this master manipulator and he's used bloodbending to get Korra out of the way. But now this sort of re, re-shows that as like, oh, once he had to go to bloodbending, like he had lost control mm-hmm. of the situation. He was no longer he was no longer manipulating events. He was now basically screwed. And I, I, I like the way that that does that. Um I, I I really I agree I think that like I actually became the thing I the thing that made me most sympathetic to him was the way that he admits that like he basically just did what his father would have wanted and didn't even think about it like he just kind of went on the same 
he just did what his father had drilled into him and and that and he felt like it was obvious that that really tore him up when he realized that and that like telling that story in a lot of ways made that really obvious to him mm-hmm. and and I, that that that's more than anything what made me very sympathetic to him he basically got to use Cora and Mako as his therapist yeah <laughs> he he revealed his his deep seated daddy issues to them Daddy issues, man. Daddy issues are all over both of these series. They are. They really are. Um, and they, I mean, we get. Hey, more, speak, we get more of them in the next issues. episode too. Yeah, spe- speaking of daddy issues, uh-huh. um, so we get to see every. I think just about every character from Avatar, like via flashback or whatnot, we get to see where they wound up, sort of, except for Zuko. Right. We don't get Zuko. We, we, I mean, we get General Iroh, and it's really weird hearing Zuko's voice coming out of that clean-cut young man. You know what? Because you're not, you're not the only person to say that, and I think maybe we even commented on that before. I'm not sure, because we only heard him say, like, one thing previously. But anyways, it seems like that's a pretty common reaction, that it's, it's weird to see a brand-new character um, with that same voice. But... So today, when I rewatched these episodes, I was I was paying particular attention, and maybe I'm imagining it. Maybe this is me, you know, trying too hard, uh, or whatever. But I feel like, um, uh, God, his name just went out of my head, uh, Dante Bosco. Uh, I feel like he actually was giving a different performance. Like at one complaint I've heard about uh, his his vocal performance is that he's so sort of monotone or whatever, just the, the, he's, he's so even, uh, when he performs and which I don't necessarily agree with, but I at least imagined that I heard him, uh, speaking with different inflections as, as the young general Iroh here. And, and I don't know, I mean, it was obviously Zuko's voice, but I just, I thought that I could hear him doing some different things than he did when he was Zuko. I know. I actually, I agree with that. I don't think this is a copycat performance. I do think, you know, his voice is so distinctive, mm-hmm. and he, you know, he is at the same time clearly trying to, you know, they they want you to know this is you know the same Zuko style voice. Um, I don't know. It was it was distracting. Like I'm not saying it didn't work, mm-hmm. but it it was a little distracting at least this first time through. You know, my favorite moment was General Iroh. It's when uh, Korra comes up with a different plan, and <laughs> and uh, Iroh is just like, my grandfather would have trusted the Avatar, and so will I. And yeah, you was... like genuinely liked that, or are you being? No, I'm being serious. I thought that was great. Okay. That was a great little emotional moment. Yeah, I agree. I liked it because that says so much about what Zuko and Aang's relationship became. In the years following Avatar, yeah. Um, so there's there's one really significant thing that we've learned in this episode that we haven't talked about yet, and that oh, is yeah? that is how Amon uh, oh. energy bends. Oh yeah, he uses bloodbending. Yep, to do it somehow, and then that's how. Uh, Tarlock realizes that Amon is his brother Noah Talk. This is like a whole speed racer thing. Like, unbeknownst to Tarlock, uh, Amon is <laughs> so actually got, his long lost brother Noah Talk. He's even masked, yes. Ender yeah. X. <laughs> you know, okay, so at the very beginning of the episode, when we get that old timey war battle, um, I thought 
I, I kind of came around on it, but at first I saw that, that giant Amon mask on the Aang statue. <laughs> yeah. Just, really? They, they spit the, who manufactured that? <laughs> how did, how did they fund that mask? Hiroshi Sato, uh, of course. Oh, well, duh. 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 Okay. You're right. He's the manufacturer, but still that was, that was kind of goofy, but I came around on it. When he's not inventing new evil machines, he's inventing gigantic evil masks. There you go. It's a hobby of his. You yeah, know that he had that waiting for the day so he could like <laughs> present it to Amon and be like, look what I made you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a kiss ass. Um, oh man. So, so this about... is this is finally the answer that I've been. Uh, oh yeah. I've been alluding, or you know, I, I keep I've asked a few times over the course of this season, why does it look different? Why does it? Why? And I it... thought, see, I thought that was just you obnoxiously being like, "Well, this is annoying. Why does it look different?" I was like, see, "Jesus, Paul, get over it. It just looks different." My obnoxious questions always have a point. <laughs> Do they? You didn't realize that. that Paul was trying to spoil you on what was going on <laughs> and not just being an asshole. I was, I was just like, "Jesus, Paul, shut up." <laughs> um, but no, yeah. So, like I was saying, that's how Tarlock realizes Amon is his brother Noah Talk because he recognizes. Uh, Amon's like bloodbending grip from when his dad, from when their dad made them bloodbend each other. That's that's horrible. So messed up. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting. I'm not sure I quite got the mechanics of how that works, like how he uses bloodbending to remove. So, so I have I have something. So I read this, and I feel like I read it somewhere official, but it never actually comes up in the show. So maybe not. But it actually makes a lot of sense and goes along with what we've known before, which is that. Um, he blocked the act of chi paths yeah. for for people's bending to stop, which okay. makes a lot of sense for two reasons. Actually, it lines up with two pieces of information we get in this these two episodes. Well, I've been mean, before. One is that we have seen that, but chi path blocking stopped Aang from even going into the Avatar state. Mm-hmm. So that's certainly a very possible thing. And the second thing was Katara couldn't heal that, right? And Katara couldn't heal this either. Oh yeah. That's true. Yeah. So it, it does line up with like it being a chi block of some kind. Yeah, because... I mean, I mean, plus there's also just the chi blockers that that Katara and the chi blockers, you know, tie into it another way as well. They've explained previously, like when they first introduced in in Avatar, when they introduced the idea that water, some waterbenders can heal, they mentioned then that it uh, involved manipulating the chi coursing through the body or whatever. So that ties into this. And then just the chi blockers, the fact that their whole, you know, power set or whatever derives from blocking the flow of energy through your body. Yep. So, so blocking, he blo- blocking the chi paths is what I read. And I think that is likely the right, the right explanation. And it just didn't make it into the series. Mm-hmm. Is what my feeling is. Makes How does that work for you, Arlo? I think that makes sense. I'm gonna go ahead and say it's in my professional medical opinion that checks out. <laughs> All right. That this does raise the question though, if Katara now I, I just don't I don't know if Katara just didn't think of this. Which what doesn't could Katara remove bending? Because she can also blood bend. I just I don't think that would have occurred to Katara. I don't I don't think it remove. occurred to it didn't occur to Yakone either. I don't think it occurred to anyone who had blood bent before. Yeah, uh, uh, Noah Talk was a pioneer. Well, I'm just saying, uh, when she's trying to restore Cora's uh, K- uh, power set, at that by that point, they now know that uh, Amon had been doing it by bloodbending. Oh, right. So she's also a bloodbender, or has been in the past. Has she complete? You know, I- I'm just wondering. 
we don't see what she does to try and restore Korra's powers, but I assume that it involved a lot of glowy water. Um, but I just, I just wonder if another someone else who can bloodbend would be able to unbloodbend her powers back or whatever. So you're saying that Katara could theoretically have, like, used bloodbending to reopen the chi paths? Maybe. I mean, the obvious solution. The two most obvious reasons why she didn't do that is one, that's just, I mean, we found out in this episode that uh, bloodbending is illegal because of Katara. Right. Don't, don't know how, but it, someone says Katara was responsible. Because of that coward Katara. Exactly. Um, and then the other thing is, I mean, Amon is such a powerful bloodbender. I mean, he's, he's I'm sure he's 10 times more powerful than Katara ever was with bloodbending. So it's possible that he just, that she even if she tried, maybe she couldn't undo that. Yeah, she's right. he's pretty explicitly called out as like the most powerful bloodbender and one of the most powerful benders that um, Tarlock has ever seen. Yeah, that he's just fantastic. And um, in fact, he's so good. And this is actually one of the other things. This is actually maybe my favorite piece of the reveal is that they realize that that's why none of the benders could fight him. Because yeah. he's using bloodbend subtly to deflect people's attacks, yes. which I think is just unbelievably brilliant. And it, it's one of those things where I was like kind of frustrated that he was able to beat everyone. But that makes so much sense that I just thought that was fantastic. That was a, another yeah. brilliant use of bloodbending, especially as someone who's pretending not to be a bender mm-hmm. to find a way to use your bending as a as a, a as a edge that no one even knows is there. So thus cannot fight. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, so, I thought that I thought that was great. That was a great like. Oh, that's why, yeah. and it explains his arrogance and being like, "I'll fight you," mm-hmm. because because they quickly realized after that the right way to beat him is area effect attacks. Yeah, at point. So it's all it's all AOE damage <laughs> after that because he can't deflect. Wait, AOE. you just you just out nerded me. Can we what, AOE damage? Can can you can you it, back up and explain this area of effect? Area yeah. effects. Okay, it, it's like in. In um and in like role playing games and like Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, you have two different types of attacks. You have like something like a direct attack, like a magic missile, which is like I'm shooting a thing at you, and that's what that's what um no attack is deflecting. But then you have something like fireball, which is like it's just going to explode and create a huge amount of damage in an area, and even if you step to the side of it, it's still going to explode and catch you in its splash zone, and that is an area effect attack. Okay, I'm so. going to call it a splash zone attack. That is well, that's because you're an idiot. <laughs> hey, this is a Nickelodeon show. Splash Zone sounds appropriate. <laughs> the Slime Zone. I'm going to call it a Slime Zone attack. Uh, uh, one more thing I want to point out uh, in this, just because I want to toot my own horn. Hey, not on mic. Um, last week we talked about, I mentioned the sort of, that the cabin in the woods thing, the cabin in the mountains felt like a noir trope to me. Right. Um in this specifically, I wouldn't have known the specifics, but the whole Yacon, uh, like undergoing plastic surgery to change his identity, like escaping from prison and having plastic surgery, I immediately thought that's that seems to me like a very, uh, in fact, what was my note? My note was uh, Yacon underwent facial reconstruction surgery, which seems a very noir tropey kind of thing. Um, <laughs> so in the uh, in the Art of the Animated Series book. Uh, I'm looking in here, and it says, uh, Yacon underwent a crude form of plastic surgery to change his appearance. We were inspired in part by the film noir Dark Passage, where Humphrey Bogart's character undergoes a similar operation. Nice. Nice. There's one Bogart noir I always get confused with Dark Passage. I don't think Dark Passage is the one I've seen. 
Like, but yeah, that's cool. All right. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, anything else that we had to, to say about this? Oh, oh man, this is a really good, really satisfying uh, chapter. Yeah, things get things start getting like that really great like end game feel in this. Well, they when as they split up mm-hmm. to go and do their separate attacks, mm-hmm. and um, just just this is just a I, I this is a, a really great like setup episode for the ending, and it has a lot of really great reveals. And this is near the end of this episode is when I started to feel like, oh yeah, okay, this is this is definitely pulling off the way I wanted it to. So, I'm, I'm, by the way. By the way, for all the people listening at home who cared, uh, Dark Passage is not the 1947 Humphrey Bogart noir I've seen. Dead Reckoning is. Oh, there you go. So that's the one without Lauren Bacall. <laughs> so everybody, uh, fill that in in your, uh, in your Arlo uh, bingo cards. Arlo bingo? Arlo bingo. That sounds like a noir name, doesn't it? Arlo was his name That's going on my tombstone. Uh, all right on that note let's move to the next chapter uh the last sure. chapter 112 endgame arlo um yeah so this this was indeed the end game uh yeah <laughs> there's a there's a lot to talk about it's super super satisfying i felt uh, as a final chapter um yeah so i think the first thing that we should talk about is uh, so Cora and Mako expose Amon at the rally and the most, the, the aspect of that that affected me the most was when we see that Tenzin and his family Dude. were captured. Yes. Yes. And that happens. And what really sells it is Cora's response. And Janet Varney, I think, I mean, she, she's done a great job the whole season, but I really think she nails this line delivery, the absolute horror of, of no, they, they got away. We saw them get away. I mean, she does it much better than I just did. But just Cora's utter disbelief at the fact that, like, she was so sure that Lynn, uh, Lynn's sacrifice, uh, you know, paved the way for Tenzin to escape and that that was something she did not have to worry about. And then all of a sudden we see, you know, nope, they, Amon got them and is about to remove airbending from the world. Yeah. That is a super powerful moment. That, yes, that whole, is. everything about that. There's like, I love how many, like on one, there's something like that, like all the emotional stuff of that, like hit me really hard. And, and there's also the, I th- something about the fact that um, there's two big moments. I think I can think the other one is, I think that we get the first, element of this in the last episode when he has I we actually forgot to mention this when he has the line of people of vendors that he's that he's just processing through like Mm -hmm. taking the bending from each person which was which was very very um, unsettling of an image and then we get this which really drives home the idea that he is going to wipe airbending from the world Mm -hmm. like he is going to what we was just starting to cling back on we were just starting to get airbenders and in front of a crowd he is going it's not just that he's like wiping out bending like here is a moment where i'm going to wipe out all of air bending mm-hmm. and there's just something so specifically cruel about it um that it really nails and uh, so one thing i, I, I don't want to i was we missed the talk getting to talk about this last episode and I, I think it's worth noting we've talked a lot about the style of amon's um demagoguery and like what it means and this is the first time like that was when it made me realize that 
that one of the allusions I think is interesting to what Amon's revolution is is something equivalent to like the communist revolution in um, in Russia, where we had a majority that did not hold power, overthrowing a minority that did, right. and then bloodily executing them all. And the, the bits of the French Revolution also have this too, where like it suddenly turns into this like we're not just retake, we're not just redistributing power, we're literally going to just kill everyone who is in the the overly powerful minority, and that I think that is really like what this starts to play out like once a month. And, and see, it, it, I'm not familiar enough with with all of that to to have recognized that. I look at all of this through the the Nazi lens actually, because like a like I said earlier, uh, in earlier discussions, and he has now made it explicit, Amon has now made explicit the whole, uh, I will cleanse you of your impurities and all that stuff. Um, it, it, he, okay. You, you were talking about in the previous chapter in chapter 111, we got that, the visual of all the people lined up and one by one, he was taking their bending away. It was just a, it was an assembly line that makes me think of I, I don't know that just makes me think of like trains or you know Jews being lined up and you know taken into a processing center or whatever um you've got the chi blockers that you could look at their costumes even though I like I sort of like the chi blocker uh steampunk nin, steampunk ninja look uh you could all you could look at those as kind of brown shirts yeah, I, you, you know what? I, you know, why, why I brought up the um, the French Revolution and actually probably give you context on this to think about what it reminded me specifically of is the period of the Reign of Terror or the Terror, mm-hmm. which there's a Sandman issue, right? Yeah, yeah, that deals with that, and it's sort of the same thing of like just this angry run of executions against the, your political enemies. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's there's. Anyway, so that it's I think it's interesting that there's a lot of those aspects to it, and this sort of drives home on a personal level. That he is more than happy to to. It's not just about it making things equal. Like he is going to eliminate this from the world and do it in front of a crowd to yeah. to great applause. And when yeah, when Tenzin and, and his family cop it, it, like it, and it's, it's great writing that you have the, the the thematic idea of it up to this point, and now we personally understand through characters we love what the implications are. Anyways, that's just, that's, yeah. that's good writing. And, and Arlo, you were right. The, the Cora's reaction and her delivery of the line. No, they're, they, they escaped. We saw them escape or whatever. So did we like that, that mm-hmm. that's her speaking for the audience. Yeah. We saw them get away too. Um, yeah. to the point where even though I'd seen the show before, I found myself immediate. My first thought was, this is a trick. That's, that's not really Tenzin and the kids. Those are people dressed up. He's just messing with Cora's head, but no, obviously it was really them. It, yeah, it really is like just the like your stomach turns mm-hmm. when that when that happens. Um, as as for what you guys are talking about, like the the, the political ramifications of what Amon is doing. Um, so I sort of <clears throat> notoriously had a really difficult time at the beginning <laughs> of our Cora discussion uh, because I was viewing. Um, I, I had it all wrong, and I think I had this epiphany like last week or the week before. When I first started watching this, I assumed that non-benders were the minority mm-hmm. and that they were being oppressed. And that to me is such like a – that would have been a lot clearer cut case of you know, uh, benders have all the power. They're crushing the non-benders. But it becomes a lot more 
complex, a lot more, a lot trickier to navigate when you realize that, as you, as you both said, uh, benders are an overly powerful minority. Right. Um, and yeah, it becomes a lot. It, it's a much different situation then, a lot thornier, thornier then, and it's it, you know Amon is actually. You know, he he winds up he himself being a bender. He is putting the absolute like worst face on bending possible. So this this powerful minority that could, that could do and, and does so much good in the world is now being used as a a, a tool for evil. Um, yeah. So yeah, I I completely did a total one eighty on that throughout the season. The, it. it... You know, uh, there's something we can talk about at the end, but I, st- uh, it's still slightly problematic. Okay, I would love to talk about that. So, well, we we can talk about that at the end. But uh, so the rest of this episode, um, I keep going, Arlo. What else? What else have we got besides that that gut punch of a moment? So besides that gut punch, uh, let's talk about Asami taking on her dad in An- another another example. gut punch. <laughs> Another gut punch and another example of this of both of these series fascination with daddy issues. Right. Yep. Um, and I actually I, I do want really quickly want to say that I think um, having even though it is that cliche of like oh my god he's so and so's brother, even though that is definitely a cliche, the fact that so Tarlock and Amon are dealing with their you know awful father and that uh, affected how they both that affected both of the people they became now we have Asami dealing with her father and rejecting uh his way of life i it occurred to me that is an excellent tie in now that we have the whole uh season uh, to look at that ties in excellently to sort of like the in a meta way to how Korra is having to deal with the legacy of Avatar and the fact that we you know th- there are still characters uh, from Avatar around in the the Korra world and I think it's interesting that uh, a show that is uh, has to deal with the the legacy of this you know hugely popular acclaimed animated series uh, makes it uh, like in its actual, narrative deals directly with so much with like the, the the passing of legacy both for good or ill it kind of it kind of reminds me of the how force awakens uh Ooh. dealt dealt with uh you know being you know a, the, the the new torchbearer for the star wars franchise mm-hmm. i just thought that was interesting i don't know if i have anything else to say about it <laughs> all right cool um, um so anyway uh asami and her dad uh, that was great. Um, and I really Asami love... gets Asami gets a Ripley moment in this. She does. She she's like, what do you know? Just like a future industries forklift. Yeah. And my my like I even wrote in my notes, aliens. Um, <laughs> if only she'd said, get away from her, you bitch. I, I would have loved that. Oh man, I'd love if she called Sato Hiroshi Sato, you bitch. <laughs> And I really love that. So if we do, if we are seeing, you know, how uh, Tarlock and Noatok's father destroyed their lives, we see Asami completely rejecting uh, her father's mm-hmm. uh, way of life. I, I loved that. Yeah. Plus it's a cool fight. It's another cool it's fight. It's a cool fight. We get a mecha fight, which always makes me happy. I love 
I love mecha fights. I love that whole. Like, that wait, whole wait, scene. wait, hold on. You like mechas? I know is that it's a thing? shocking, isn't it? <laughs> it's un- unreal for me to call out a mecha fight, but it's gonna get called out every single time we ever see a mecha fight. Anything we watch, I'm gonna talk about how much I love mecha <laughs> fights. As mecha fights go, this was a mediocre one on a technical level, but on an emotional level, was was the top notch. Very good. It was pretty short, but yeah, it it, it is. It's the way that Hiroshi just like turns on Asami and is like, you ungrateful, insolent child, I now see there is no way to save you. That yeah. is, that's so awful. Like, he immediately just decides that his own flesh and blood, the daughter that he raised, is beyond saving because she disagrees with his, with him, like, on a philosophical level. Yeah. And then, like, Bo- Bolin is even like, Mr. Sato, you are a horrible father. <laughs> I love how calmly you delivered that line that he was shouting while he was <laughs> hurling boulders at him. <laughs> Nobody can shout like PJ Byrne shouts as Bolin. Okay, I wasn't even going to try. Okay. And then Asami, her her quip gets to be, "You really are a horrible father," and then like electrocutes him. Yay! And they and then they do a high five, like like a freeze frame high five. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that happened. Not in the version I watched, but (laughs) that would like 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 a vegan police style high five (laughs) backgrounds. Yeah, exactly. Oh my god! All about that. Um, hey, General, uh, was it last week or the week before? At some point previously, I had mentioned, how come the firebenders don't just like do the whole fire jet thing? Guess what? General Iroh can do it. Yeah. That was awesome. That's pretty great. There's there's a great moment in this episode where uh, Iroh's, like crashes his plane into the giant mod mask <laughs> yep. and uh, you know it, it breaks and falls. Then he like is grabbing onto the flag and then he like looks up at the statue and is like, "Thanks for looking out for me, Ang." <laughs> That's another great little moment. It could have been so cheesy, but it works so well. <laughs> Possibly a bit of fan service, but it worked for me. Well, it, oh, it's, it's it. definitely fan service. And you know what? Okay, here's my stance on fan service. I. Like nine times out of ten, it is my opinion that fan service serves no one. Mm-hmm. But there are, I think, moments like this, like the two, the two little moments we get where Iroh, you know, confirms like his father's love of the Avatar. Grandfather. Um, grandfather, sorry. Um, I think that works. So those are just tiny little emotional moments. It's not like it's going out of its way to, you know, going through contortions to do something the fans really wanted to see. So mm-hmm. that stuff works for me. Eric. And then, oh, go ahead. Oh, so sorry. You know, Eric, no, 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 no. Arlo, keep on, keep on. Um, and then uh, the lieutenant finds out that Amon was lying to him, which is which was a great moment. That was a great moment. You know, here's this guy who was so committed to a cause that he dedicated his life to it, and to, to this one guy, and believed in him so fully, and just realizes it was all a lie. And then, you know, he gets dealt with pretty quickly. Um, I, in my notes, I was like, yeah, that would have killed him on a non-kid show. Like the, like the, I don't, I don't think Amon would have flung him away. I feel like Amon would have bloodbended him into, into oblivion. Yeah. Yeah. Like into, into like a pretzel, you know, just cut him up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's still such a weird role for Lance Henriksen. Yeah. Like, I, I still don't know if I'll ever understand why they decided that was the role for uh, for Lance Henriksen, but it's so it's so confusing. That's fine. That's fine. 
so we managed to talk about this without talking about the Amon uh, Korra Mako fight very much. Yeah, yeah, go for it. And and this is full of amazing moments. Um, first of all, I, I I just love that that like when they like the whole fight through the um the hallways is great as Korra like like uses like fire blast behind her to try to slow him down. Oh, the slow, the slow motion shot of him leaping through the fire. God, that was badass. Oh, that was awesome. And then we get kind of a horror movie thing of them hiding and him finding her. And we get two big moments. I mean, him taking Korra's bending, even though you know the series is going to go on, you know something's going to have to happen, is still crushing mm-hmm. because it's crushing to Korra. And this is like the first the first time I, that, I, that we are – we're going to see Korra kicked around a lot in this series. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say that. That Korra – Shoulders a level of trauma that would have probably ground Aang into ash. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> um, and and this is the first bit of it because it's so tied to it. This has been her fear the entire time, and it comes true. And it's it's absolutely a crushing moment. They really they really nail it. Um, and then we get to this moment where he's gonna um, take Mako's away, and he lightnings him, yeah. which is just a <laughs> fist pumping moment. Yes, it was awesome. I, I I love that he's like so happy later. He's like no one really gets the better of me. Like it's it's a it's a shame to take away someone so talented. So yes. I do like that he like manages to impress Amon with his little lightning blast. But it leads up to a moment that I was saying that like this show gets me on like a visceral like emotional level. When Korra starts airbending, I like I felt a swell of emotion <laughs> at that. Well, I won't lie, it was like exactly the kind of thing I want from a show like this. That like in this moment. Um, when everything's been taken away, like she finally finds that, and that like he obviously wasn't didn't block it because this kind of goes along with the cheap uh, path thing. I think is that if that cheap path wasn't open properly in the first place, it's probably why he never blocked it. Mm-hmm. Um, so she still has her air bending, and her, her again. This is another like, great Janet Varney performance. Her like I can air bend moment is so good. And and it catches Amon off guard and forcing him out the window with with her attack. It's just like it is a triumphant moment and a moment of everyone's life sucking, basically. They've just gotten their asses kicked, and that just is like a huge swell. So, anyways, that that's one of those things where like I don't know if I ever had a moment like that in Avatar where I was like, "Fuck yes, fuck yes," you know what I mean? It was so <laughs> and even more than just yes, like there's times in shows like that where I get like like legitimately emotional on like a joy level. You know what I mean? Like, and that's like one of those things where there's like this visceral, visceral joy that I feel. It's like a catharsis that, that totally gave me. So awesome. Anyways, was, and, and the show uh, pulls it off. Uh, I mean, it hasn't been really the dry. It, it seemed like at the beginning of the season, it was going to be the driving question. Will she ever learn how to airbend? Uh, that's kind of been pushed to the background, but I mean, it's an important uh development for the character that we've at this point in the show we've kind of forgotten about so when she does that because so much else has been happening yeah so when she does that you're like for just a second you're like oh shit that's right she yeah (laughs) she could never do this before that was great yeah it's really great it's it is it's so good because like that her not being able to airbend is part of the the beginning of the show and i do love that they just drop it like by this point in the show they just kind of drop that she hasn't been able to so when it happens, you're like, shit, mm-hmm. see an airbend, we're here. And it's great. It's great. How, by the way, how much, how paranoid of a motherfucker is Amon <laughs> that he walks around with scar makeup under his mask just right. in case he has to show it? <laughs> right. 
that's, that is some serious over-preparation right there. How... I mean, look, if you have a giant mask of your face, like, the statue size, I feel like you're probably pretty paranoid. Like, you... <laughs> I just, probably got all your bases covered. In in programming, we have a, a phrase, we like an axiom we say, which is premature optimization is the root of all evil. And I want to say that this was some serious premature optimization on his part. Somewhere <laughs> on early a, on, he was he On was a like, kid's show, no less. I hate it when I have premature optimization. <laughs> you, yep. They, you, yeah, thank you for going there. Yeah, he was, he was, he was like, just someday, someday someone's going to make me see my face. I want her to do scar makeup. Yeah. And that's how you know he's evil. He, of course, he could have he could have been better prepared. He could have had uh, makeup that wouldn't wash off. Yeah, come on, man. Use some oil-based paints, you moron. Exactly. Jeez. <laughs> Use some oil-based paints, you moron. <laughs> that's my new insult for everyone. Even if nothing to do with painting. I, I, do, I do love that, like, his... That Korra beats him by basically, like, triggering by knocking him into the water unconscious it's like it's like a automatic instinct response like it's a reflex response that water bends him out mm-hmm. of right. it like he's not even thinking and then it's like whoops yeah <laughs> screw that one up i have no scar makeup and i water bend although you know the fact of the matter is if he was smart the really the smart way of going would have been to actually scar himself because then that <laughs> scar makeup thing couldn't have happened but that said was anyone going to not think was anyone going to think differently about him if the scar makeup hadn't washed off I mean, right. were they going to be like, well, well, the firebenders did burn his face, so it's okay. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, so, so let's talk about, uh, before we get into how Korra's story wraps up for this season, I think we need to talk about uh, Amon's finish. Oh, yeah. man. I, how I, dark is this? I have a way to tie this into Cora's finish, as a matter okay. of fact, but we'll, we'll get to that. So, yeah, Arlo, uh, how, how did that hit you? This, I, thought that was, I thought it was amazing. It's, I mean... It's one of... It, you know, all through uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, we kept finding opportunities to say, I can't believe how dark this, this children's network show is willing to go. Yeah. This is all is next level it is and especially because earlier in the episode i had been like well they clearly dodged killing the lieutenant like <laughs> yeah. like you know because avatar dealt with that a few times avatar had killed, like we knew they died right but you had to read between the lines that they died and i suppose you could make that same argument for for the amon tarlock thing and i'm sure that's how they got it on the air yeah someone i imagine someone at a at a uh why can't I think of the name? A standards That's and practices stand, yeah. meeting is like, now you don't see them die. They could have jumped off the boat right before right. it blew up. <laughs> right. Though what, what I find interesting is, so standards and practices for Nickelodeon on the air, clearly they have one opinion. Mm-hmm. Like like the example I'm going to use is like, like Jet didn't really die. Mm-hmm. Like Like it looked like he was going to, but he was okay. We didn't see him die. But then I did like when we were reading uh, The Promise, Gene Lu and Yang had wanted to bring Jet back right. in the comics. And then he, he said that the creators and Nickelodeon were both like, no, Jet is gone. No, you can't bring Jet back. Yeah. So even if they didn't die, they, they died. <laughs> this, you can't, again, you can make the technical argument that they didn't die, but they totally died. And this was such a dark, uh, devastating twists like the fact that uh it actually it, for 
briefly, momentarily, it makes you feel bad for Amon because he has that moment where he's like, uh, or no, Tarlock says it will be just like the good old days. Mm -hmm. And there's like tears in Amon's eyes. And, you know, we see it happening. And at first I thought he was just going to like subdue Amon. Like he was just going to electrocute Amon because I was not expecting them to go to this place. But then, yeah, he, he blows the ship up. And I, I, I got full-on chills during that moment. It's a jaw drop moment. It, it's pure, like, of mice and men stuff. Right, yeah. It's, oh. Lenny. it's gonna be okay, Lenny. Yeah. Look at the yeah. rabbits, Lenny. <laughs> it's, it is, it's, it's amazingly brutal, and it is. There's no... It's not just that he kills um, um, Amon. It's a, it's, a, it's a total, like, it's a murder-suicide attack. He blows yes. them both up. Like, that's what... Like, you could get away – like, you could make an argument in a kid's show like, okay, well, the bad guy's really bad and he has to die and, you know, this is a slightly older show, so no big deal. How the hell do you argue a murder-suicide attack <laughs> to Nickelodeon? <laughs> you know, Nickelodeon, who we will talk at, at, near the end of the series about something they would not let happen, mm-hmm. um, that is – that is, but th- that they were not okay with, but they were totally okay with Tarlock suicide bombing in in an episode where we explicitly have the whole gi joe phenomenon happening every time one of those biplanes was blown out of the sky they'd make sure that you saw a little parachute in the background yeah yeah every time they would like someone would very explicitly jump out with a parachute every time it's it's a it's a miracle that this happened yeah i don't know i don't know how i don't know how it occurred it's wonderful it is the most possibly Possibly one of my favorite things about the Legend of Korra was that explosion. <laughs> yeah, because and the fact that uh, Tarlock also blows himself up just makes him that much more of a sympathetic character because he realizes how you know corrupted he has become and realizes that you know I can't just take out my brother for the good of everyone. I have to take out both of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that is some deep shit. Some incredible fuel they've got in that boat too. <laughs> Get mushroom clouds, man. Jeez. Sato Industries is not fucking around. Sato, Hiroshi Sato is a mushroom cloud laying motherfucker, motherfucker. <laughs> oh, well played. All right, so that only leads us to uh, talk about how Korra's story ends out. Yeah, okay, so here's my question. When did they know that they were coming back for a second season. Like, did they know in production that they were coming back for a second season at some point? Or was that only after, like, was it during like broadcast they found out? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, we, you and I talked about this a little bit. I don't know in production at what point they knew. I do know that they had all of this mapped out. Like some of the actors have talked about the fact that a lot of this stuff they knew from the beginning like where it was going to go as you mentioned earlier arlo this was originally intended to be one and done it was going to be 12 episodes and that's it um but as far as during broadcast it was right around the midpoint maybe a little bit past that of when the show was being broadcast um they announced that there was going to be a second season but i don't know like i don't know if the entire production was complete at that point right um because I think, I think that really affects how Cora's story plays out. If this was all we were going to get, I am pretty damn 
close to being fully satisfied with this. Mm-hmm. Like the the fact that uh, well, well, one, I uh, I am just really satisfied regardless of how she finally connects with her spiritual self. You know, we think it's it's Tenzin approaching her mm-hmm. in the background, but it turns out to be Aang, and then uh, she sees all of the avatars. And actually, there's something that Aang says to her that I want I want to mention. Um, he's the one who says you have finally connected with your spiritual self. She asks how, and Aang says, "When we hit our lowest point, we are open to the greatest change." Mm-hmm. And leave it to this to a I know we we always say this, but to a, a goddamn kid show to say something that moved me to such a degree because this really that that line really hit home for me. Um, yeah, that, that yeah, I don't know. Just the fact that again. So much of what happened on Avatar and what has, especially what's happened in Korra, seems unfathomable, unfathomable for a Nickelodeon series, and for for Aang to say something that profound and that meaningful uh, on the show, I, I think speaks volume volumes to the show's quality. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, it's it's, it's there's a, there's it's it's such a. This is the first time where we really get it, and we're going to talk about this more as the series goes on. But it 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 deals with the the trauma of these events on like and the toll it takes on Korra on a level that most shows don't, and Avatar never really got to be able to do. And even this, like, it spends a fair amount of time in Korra's despondence at losing her yeah. power. It's, it's not like they beat him on and then it's gone. You know what I mean? Like, there's, it there's feels a, like a, a genuine violation. Yeah, and it feels like she is not going to be herself anymore, and she and she doesn't know how. To right, do because that. this the the very first time we saw Korra in this series, she was five years old and was like, "I'm the Avatar, deal with it," and was so you know had such joy and, and pride in being the Avatar, and now all of a sudden she she isn't. Right, um, and so when we get that statement about like when we're at our lowest, it ring it works because we really feel where Korra is. You know, like we if it was just sort of like 30 seconds of like, I can't bend and then everything happened, it would be like, OK, that's a nice sediment, but whatever. But Cora is in a legitimately low place when this happens. And that might be my favorite thing about Cora as a whole is that it takes the toll that um, and the weight of these kinds of battles very seriously and it's something that's rare in any genre show and is vanishingly rare in like kids TV or animation in America. So I really, I really, I really appreciate that and how seriously it takes it. And, and I agree a hundred percent with you, Eric, that uh, this series as a whole, not just this season um, really addresses that. Like they, I feel like they never sugarcoat the sort of emotional impact that some of these crazy, like superheroic events that take place, um, they they have a cost, and we see that on the show. Yeah, um, yeah. So as great as that is, I I don't know. Again, if this had been the only season, that would the fact that she uh, goes into the Avatar state, regains her bending, is able to give Lin's bending back, that would have been great. The fact that we you know the show continues, I almost feel a little bit like we got cheated. 
a little bit out of – I think it would have been really fascinating if we went into the second season of the show with Korra, you know – not having her bending restored and, you know, trying to rediscover herself and then maybe have that play out over, you know, part of the season and make that part of her journey. Um, I, I, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? Hold that thought. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I was going to say that I, I agree with that. Um, I felt the same way. The, um, the, uh, I guess one of the ways that I kind of, fan wank to make myself feel a little better about it is that that we this season kind of already did that it kind of like we already had an incomplete Korra right um and that was I mean that particular trauma got overshadowed by other stuff like we just talked about but in essence this was a season where Korra didn't have her full uh avatar abilities and she only gets them at the very end um so then to go into another season uh that has that just reverses it you know gives her the one power she didn't have and takes away all the others i agree with you i'm 90 percent like i kind of wish that we could have seen that in second season uh but you know i also see how it, it could feel like it's just repeating itself yeah you you i i want to I, I yeah i agree i think that I, I really this is going to be an interesting conversation in later in later seasons. Um, I think there's some I think there's some things that are going to make you um, happy to see them address in some ways and also sad because we're addressing them. So anyways, um, <laughs> this is something that I guess what I'm saying is I think that the showrunners also wish they had known they were doing more time uh-huh. and wish they could have done that is my personal opinion based on where the show goes from here. Okay. So that is, that's my feeling is that I would think, I think that the showrunners absolutely had a conversation where it was like, man, that would have been a good way of handling this. That's, that is my personal opinion. And I think we will all be on that page by the end of the show. All right. Okay. As I've Um, said, I don't remember seasons two and three very well. So, Hey, you know, what is cool though. We are going into a season where we have an avatar who has has learned all of the abilities, and I don't th- I don't think we've we've ever had that before. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have we have three seasons of this show with a avatar who has gone through their first real gate and is a basically fully trained avatar. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. It's it's cool. cool. It gives a different tone to the series. I mean, even this like Korra is such an accomplished combatant that it feels very believable when she's a real threat to him on and when even when she beats him up with her airbending like it feels real it doesn't feel like oh good i went i mean she doesn't even go into the avatar state mm-hmm. which i don't know if we've have we seen her go into the avatar state i don't think we have joe no she does at, at the, the very, very end, end. Episode, the very yes. oh, yeah she avatar states to when she when she heals herself that's yeah. it that's and, it and and when she heals uh lynn Yes. Those two times, yes. that's it. The so. energy bending avatar state, yes. I'm sorry, you're right. We've seen yeah. the energy bending. It's avatar. also interesting that for for many most of the times that we saw Aang go into the avatar state, it was always like an out-of-control right. emotional it was, outburst. That, that was my problem with it, too, is that he lost agency. Right, and here, the two times so far that we've seen her do it, she's she's clearly very much herself, which is how yeah. that's supposed to work. 
I guess. Right, yeah. But she, I mean, she is older than Aang. Maybe right. she has a little more self-control. Right. Speaking of self-control, uh, let's talk about the, the love trapezoid. Okay, hang on. Before we get to that, I want to ask, uh, because I, I said that I had a way to sort of tie in the, the oh, right. murder-suicide thing to, <laughs> right. to the Korra thing. Um, so uh, there has been some criticism of the way none of us went there. I was, I was almost expecting you to go there. Uh, Arlo, but there's been criticism. There have been comparisons to the end of this being similar to uh, the Deus Ex Lion Turtle uh, thing, uh, where this is kind of a Deus Ex Ang, where Ang just shows up like out of nowhere. Hey, guess what? You you've made contact with the spirit world. Here's your bending back. Some people have complained about that. Um, I have. Does that bother you? Could that bother people? I mean, I guess I can see how it bothers people. I think it makes total sense, but it, it doesn't bother me at all. And there, and there's a reason. Like, so this is this is why it didn't really bother me. Like, some people are saying they don't really get why, like, what what was it she did that that you know awakened her to the to her spiritual side? Because as far as they, according to them, all they see is her being sad. They're like, what? She just had to be really sad. She just had to to drop a tear and all of a sudden she's in touch with hers. That's not how I read that. So here's my read and I'll defend it because it comes right after the, the uh, Tarlock murder suicide thing. I read the moment of her going off to be by herself and walking up to the edge of that cliff as the consideration of, is it worth it to go on? I don't think explicitly okay. on the show they were doing this, but I feel like you could read this, and I read this as her walking up to the edge of that cliff and sort of asking herself. Like, we get the point of view of her looking down, looking over the edge of the cliff. Like, the tear drops, and it goes all the way down. So she is right on the edge. And I read that as she she considers for a moment, is is it worth it for me to to go on because I'm not the avatar anymore. And then when she collapses back on the snow and, and starts sobbing, that's kind of her re coming to the decision. This sucks. This is horrible. I don't know if I can go on, but I'm going to. And that's yeah. when Ang shows up. Yeah. I like that. I agree with that. That's a good read. Okay, cool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, I think that treating it as a deus ex Ang doesn't make sense on a couple of levels anyways. Um, one being she is Aang. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and by contacting her, her prior lives, which we saw Aang learn things by doing the same thing. Holy crap. What is a better, bigger day six Monarchy than air bending or than energy bending in the first place? Anyways, whatever. <laughs> anyways. So as soon as she contacts Aang, she's going to be able to know how to energy bend. And once she's able to energy bend, she's going to be able to heal herself. Right. So, that should be a surprise to no one. And so, and, and her contacting her past lives is, is a, a, the avatar contacting their past lives is an established piece of right. the world. So right. I think even on a plot level, it's kind of silly, but it's so emotionally resonant for a lot of reasons that I just don't, I don't, I don't, I don't buy it. I don't buy that complaint. All right. Cool. Awesome. I agree. By the way, so. by the way, if you Google, Tarlock murder suicide. Uh, it puts you on a watch list. Wait, it does. But some people really, really hate that scene. Apparently. Oh my god. Really? Like For what reason? Like, like a lot. Uh, just because. Well, part of it is like the uh, on a gut reaction level, like a kid show shouldn't have gone there. Mm. Um, 
I saw I saw a post on some uh, Avatar Tumblr about how uh, you know the, the scene glorifies suicide, and the person who wrote the post was in a de- depressive funk for weeks afterwards because of that scene. Okay. Um, and <laughs> this was written in 2012, so it's definitely talking about just the first season. But uh, how the finale of Korra ruined the entire series. I, I don't, and this this article actually does make the point that you did, Paul, that um, Cora is perhaps contemplating suicide when she goes to that cliff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't. Like, I I almost feel that's why. <laughs> I mean, it was great storytelling otherwise, but I almost feel like that's why we get that murder suicide. I I feel I almost feel like that scene is there to put that thought in our head so that when Cora walks up to the edge, you're kind of, I don't know you're kind of thinking that, but I think, I think they're saying that because this, this article I believe is actually, it's a pretty long article, but I think it's arguing that because the show didn't more explicitly go there, the show, and I'm just going to use the language this article uses, the show basically pussies out um, and isn't explicit enough and then just rev- then it goes right back into the into the love trap trapezoid thing. Well, which which okay, so that'll segue us back to the love trapezoid thing. We're yeah, all we yeah. all we all love the murder suicide. We're fans of oh, absolutely. suicide is what we're saying. Super into murder suicide. Yeah. All right, but uh, but love not so much. Uh, the love trapezoid. Uh, I I don't know I. I guess it makes sense that it's not fully over and done with. I just I don't think I was quite expecting Mako and Cora to full on admit their love for one another mm-hmm. at the end of this. I mean, if they're uh, again, gonna go... again, it's you have to wonder if that's kind of because this was originally meant to be the end, right? Um, but if they're gonna go there, I guess it is done in like the best way possible. I mean, it it feels genuine, you know. Um, Mako, you know, makes it very clear that he doesn't care about her just because she's the Avatar. Because that's another concern that she has when she's no longer the Avatar. The people that love her are going to think of her in a different way. Um, and he makes it very clear that's not the that's not the case. And I, and then the, when she finally spiritually connects w- with that side of herself, then she's able to accept, you know, and, and uh, reciprocate his love. Like it, it all it all make it all works. I guess I'm just still weary of the the love trapezoid angle of this show. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm. I'm okay with it. Again, I, I, I remain increasingly more okay with it than I should be um, because I think it, it handles itself relatively gracefully mm-hmm. despite being a sort of silly, unnecessary thing. Um, it's going to be there, obviously, as part of next season. I, I feel like next season is pretty much the end of the active the active versions of this, although there's like still some romance stuff bubbling around, but I feel like Somewhere in next season, I think we're mostly free of what we would consider the love quadrangle stuff. Um, So it's not going to last much longer, I think. And I think, but I, even with it being there, I don't know it. um, 
I think that I again I like that Asami gets to have her own plot separate from it, which I think that helps me. Yeah. Asami's plot isn't wrapped up with um this garbage. So and so because she gets to be like a legit character and, and Mako's just an asshole anyways, so who cares? Um <laughs> I'm kidding. Mako's okay. He I like Mako. <laughs> He's not put in the best light in this especially towards the end of the season, but um that reminds me, mentioning Asami and uh, how she gets her own story, uh, of a piece of trivia that I read today that if, like, the original intention for the ending of this, so I guess this perhaps answers at least part of our question of, you know, how far into production were they before they knew they were going to get more, because they originally intended the end of this season, the end of this episode to feature a scene like General Iroh was going to be at the southern water tribe with them with that whole group that was waiting to see if Korra could be healed or whatever uh and asami was going to announce that she was leaving to to join general iroh she was going to like join his military huh interesting so and they and i i guess that they changed that because they they found out there was going to be more and they wanted to do something else with asami interesting yeah, it hey. definitely does not end like they were pl- like the series was ending. Whatever their thought was initially, nothing about the ending of this feels like they weren't going to have more. Um, I will I will talk next season about the fact that I think that they the idea that they didn't they would plan this for one season I think is most evident next season, and not in necessarily good ways, mm-hmm. but. Um, I think next season is the season that shows the strain of it, whereas this season ends, in my opinion, very naturally as if there's going to be a second season. I think they just moved around some pieces at the very end, and it fits really well. But we'll we'll, we'll talk about the growing pains of becoming a real series <laughs> next um, year. A, a quick final question for you guys. In this article that again i do not have the time to read while recording um about how the finale ruined the whole series uh the author says um in avatar bending is impossible to do in the spirit world so ang shouldn't have been able to energy bend Korra's powers back even if he wanted to good lord this show just keeps getting worse Aang did um, an energy bender. He, he, energy no, bender. he did oh. okay that that's that's exactly what i was thinking i just wanted to make sure we were all on the same page right the, the the past live avatars don't uh, whatever <laughs> and it, honestly if that's what you're upset about you're just watching the show for the wrong reasons I don't even know what to tell I don't even know what to say to someone where that's your biggest concern <laughs> I mean besides the fact that he's not in the spirit world he's appearing to her in the physical world so whatever you morons but right, yeah and actually let's let's go back here you thought that you can't enter, you can't bend in the spirit world. It is your your aura, your spirit self can't bend. Exactly. That, that's yes. what it is. It is not that you cannot bend in the spirit world. It's that you are not in the spirit world. Your your projection is right. So either way, you're full you're full of shit person. <laughs> and I don't have any patience for you. This is from uh, avatarreviews.wordpress.com. Well, then you know it's serious it's, business. It's it's a uh, Marshall Turner's Avatar: The Last Airbender reviews because fans should be critical too. Okay, well, I'm I want to ignore his, that now. His most recent post: Quick thoughts on Zootopia. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. Um, 
So oh, I, 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 wanna... I don't think any recent Disney animated feature has left me as cold as Zootopia did. Yeah, he's an asshole. Okay. Um, anyway, okay, okay. So, okay, wait. That was one of the questions. Like one of the, we had a couple of questions you want us to answer, Paul. We did the we did the love quadrangle thing. We, did we hit the other ones, or was there other stuff? Uh, the the other two were were uh, how well does the show handle the resolution to Korra's identity crisis and spiritual uh, block or whatever that she has. Uh, and we kind of answered that, I think. And where do we and the world of Avatar stand on the Bender versus non-Bender divide at this point? Ooh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. I think that's the muddiest of all these. You you have this, Paul. This is you have thoughts. So why don't you kick this one off? <laughs> well, my thoughts are um, part of what uh, Arlo. This is at you. Part of what drew you into this show initially was how complicated this whole Bender versus non-Bender thing was because right. the show is very. The show goes out of its way, I feel like, uh, and we've talked about many times, to stress, you know what? Amon kind of has a point. You've got, I mean, your feelings change a little bit once you realize that benders aren't the actual physical majority. Um, but when, when you mentioned that earlier and I said, but it's still a little bit muddy or there's still some, some issues here, what I'm getting at is you still have... Uh, they are the powerful, they're the powerful minority is what they are. You still have, uh, you know, the, the, the major sport uh, is open only to benders. Uh, there are um, bending gangs that, uh, you know, are running rampant through the city. Um, it, it's maybe not as black and white, not as cut and dried as Amon wanted everybody to feel but there's i still feel like there were some significant questions raised and the way that this story resolves at least in the eyes of the public i don't think that necessarily clears up like at the beginning of the show it wasn't it seemed more like this was a a pretty big movement amon was tapping into something right. i don't think amon created this exactly so discrediting amon wouldn't necessarily wipe the slate clean yeah. No, I, I don't I don't think that and I don't know if the show really painted it in that way. I I honestly can't remember how the show deals with this going forward entirely. Um but I do think that you know we've uh, so here's so the the real world version of what would probably happen is the movement would splinter mm -hmm. and there would be a lot of violence <laughs> in a brief period of time and then it would probably go back to about where it was before, which we've seen with other movements where they had a, where there was really important things but a leader um, was taken from it, um, that it does hurt the movement in some ways because it fragments again and it, it becomes easier to ignore the anger again because it's unfocused and so people go back to being able to be like, well, whatever. So I, I would suspect that a, a public city that faces um, unrest for the next six, you know next year or two would be the most realistic thing, but without someone else stepping up to lead that, that status quo could easily reassert itself. Okay. Yeah. That, that's my that's my political science view on the situation. I think that makes perfect sense. I'll, I'll I buy that. That sounds completely completely uh, rational to me. Um, so. But I do. But I so I do I do. And honestly, this is something I want to keep an eye on going forward because I do think that there is. I think this is one of the things that, that the show maybe doesn't deal with quite as well as I would hope for is I don't think we dig into the bender non bender divide on a level that I would really love to see in future seasons, but I, I can think of at least 
I feel like late in the series, it's, I mean, I don't know about seasons two and three, but I feel like in season four, it's, it's touched on again. It might be. Yeah, I, I think it's there. I mean, I think that there is an overall element of like the world finding itself again mm-hmm. in in this series. And I do think that's an element of it. Um, but the next season it definitely focuses on some things that I think maybe pull us away from that a little bit. But we'll see. We'll see. Because it there's I, those are details that I may not remember. But I, I do think that like some more of it would have been interesting. But I think I do. I do overall like that this was the the approach, and I generally like how they handle it through the by the by. Generally speaking, right. how about you? Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm. I like how they dealt with it in this first season. Um, I'll be interested to see if uh, the threat is picked up on later on. I hope it is. Cool. I. I really. I feel like books two and three uh are gonna be almost like me being a newbie again i i swear i've watched this entire series before but i have maybe once i start looking at it like maybe once i start watching it or when i see episode titles it'll all come back to me but at the moment i'm like i can barely remember anything that goes on in books two and three so i'm I'm kind of in the same boat as you arlo i have a lot of memories of these two two i have maybe the fuzziest memories of um but so I know I said this before, but I want to be really clear going in that that one is, but like I said, so far my favorite season of anything that we've watched in the show, mm-hmm. like in neither of these shows so far, like it's just the one that's hit me the strongest. There's a strong possibility that two is going to be the exact opposite of that. <laughs> there is some and really interesting that. stuff in season two. <sighs> I just remember season two being very messy and, but I remember it having some really good stuff too. Like I remember there being some really awesome stuff, but I do think that this is, that it's the um, most unfocused the show is. And I don't want to uh, prejudge anything and I could be wrong. Like I may come back into the season and be like, you know what? I'm really enjoying this. So that may occur. Here's, that here's may- the claim that I will make. Um, despite the fact that I, I don't really remember the, much of what happens in book two, I can tell you that there is a, there is a point, uh, either an episode or a, 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 a plot line that happens in, in book two that is possibly my favorite thing in all of Korra. There's a really, I, I think you may be thinking of the two parter that I'm I, thinking, I am, but, um, <laughs> but there is a, there is a phenomenal two parter, a two parter that when it started, I thought I never needed this information. Right. And then in, by the end of part two, I ate my words. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's there's some there's some amazing stuff. And honestly, I may end up feeling the same way of season two where I, I doubt it's going to rise above what I feel like is probably the weakest of chorus seasons. But it's very it's very possible that I watch it and go, you know, what, this is actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, or at least there's enough really good stuff that I like because I still love the characters and there's still some neat stuff. Also, also, uh, books two, three, and four, we go back to uh, a variety of writers and directors. Yeah. And I I think that there was that we'll see how season two plays out. But season two is the first time they were treating this as a longer game. Mm -hmm. So you can see I think there's elements of them setting up a longer game. Actually, no, I don't think there are elements of them setting up a longer game. Season two is absolutely setting up the shit for the rest of the show. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's like. There are themes set up in season two that are majorly important 
for the next two seasons after that. And also it is going back to a writer's room. So yeah. between those two things of like of bringing new writers in and, you know, basically shifting from one season of plot to three seasons of plot mm-hmm. means that um, I, I, I'm, I understand where it is. And I said I'm, I'm, there's some stuff I'm seriously looking forward to in in season two that I'm looking forward to talking about. And, and it, it is going, and it will bring, we are going into a season that is going to bring great changes to the world. So yeah. at the very least, we are going to have shit to talk about by the end of next season. This, I'm fascinated. I'm just looking at this on Wikipedia, at the, at the list of directors for book two. It's two directors and they just alternate back and forth. It's Colin Heck, Ian Graham, Colin Heck, Ian Graham, Colin Heck, Ian Graham, all the way through the entire season. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, but I looked at it earlier and it looked like um, Brian uh, Konietzko never has another writing credit on the show. Uh, yeah. Um, is that ever, ever, or just in that season? Now I'm, I'm pretty sure ever. It's ever. He stays as a creator, I'm pretty sure. I think he stays as a producer on the show. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't see his but name. But then again, DiMartino doesn't write writes fewer and fewer episodes, too, to be honest. DiMartino yeah. writes like two or three episodes a season going forward. Yeah. So it's possible that Konietzko is just more was more interested in the production side of things hmm. because he's still involved in the show. He didn't leave the show. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So anyways, this was a fantastic season. I'm, I'm so excited to have gotten back to this because this was just wonderful. This Ar- was everything. This was everything I would have wanted. Arlo, do you regret it yet? I regret this every time I get on the mic and I hear uh, you two bozos talking. <laughs> Fair. Well, that's never going to go away because we, we have <laughs> a contract in perpetuity. So That's true. So, so what's next? What's next? Is it, is it um, the search? Is that where we're going next? It is. That's, that's uh, our next thing. We're stepping back to the comics. So. This, this is the perfect time to step back to the comics, too. After we're getting, we got a lot of stuff about where these characters end up. Mm-hmm. In the flashbacks, we got Iroh, General Iroh. We got um, the grandson of Zuko. We got some indications that um, Zuko and Aang continue to work together and trust each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which is which is heartening. But we don't know much else, and I'm very excited. And we got and police th- police chief Toph and Councilman Sokka. And- yeah, but then and go ahead. This is a perfect time to get to the comics because right after that we're talking about the M Night Shyamalan movie. You're, you are. That's that's what I was uh, gonna bring up. We are really we are gonna do that. So we're gonna do the search and then we are gonna watch the M Night Shyamalan one. Yeah, that again. My reasoning, like we were always going to talk about that movie at some point, <laughs> but my reasoning is if this does turn out to be the weakest season of Korra, it is going to look amazing in comparison. Oh yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a glass of cool, delicious water mm-hmm. after that. Wow, absolutely. I, I, I'm terrified, but I can't fault your logic, Arlo. So, no one can. Oh jeez. Okay. Well, that's that's as much as our audience can possibly take of that. So, uh, thank you everybody for joining us. Uh, as always, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website theavatarreturns.com. Uh, links will also be posted on our parent show site, gobbledygeekpodcast.com, 
or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes to make sure you never miss another exciting episode. While you're there, be a hero and rate or write us a review. Uh, help spread the word. If you'd like to contact us, please send your correspondence, care of uh, Monkey Yahtzee, to tar, tar podcast. That's what it is. T-A-R podcast at gmail.com. Uh, and of course, you can always find us all over social media, facebook.com slash the avatar returns or twitter.com slash T-A-R podcast. And on Twitter, I am at haunt 1013. Eric is at salon. That's S-A-A-L-O-N. And Arlo is at unplugged crazy. And next week, uh, we take a break from the show to get back into the comics. We're reading the second volume of the uh, the official comic book continuation, the Dark Horse uh, Avatar The Last Airbender series. Uh, it is The Search. So uh, until then, remember, why would there be fence posts but no fence? Through early morning fog I see Visions of the things to be The pains that are withheld for me I realize and I can see Suicide is painless It brings on many changes And I can take or leave it If I please The game of life is hard to play I'm gonna lose it anyway The losing card I'll someday lay this is all I have to say. Suicide is painless. Suicide. It brings on many changes. changes. And I can take or leave it if I please. The sword of time will pierce our skin. It doesn't hurt.